0: John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, unapologetically reading 44 verses, because this is God's Word, and we love God's Word. Amen? All right. John chapter 11, have your eyes on Scripture. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord... Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Westside, we are glad that you're here,
1: and we would love and take it as a compliment if you were like, uh, I just think they read too much Bible just then, okay? We love the Word of God here, and we are in week two of the series that we're calling Canoeing the Mountains. And so we would direct you to our website to hear week one. It's pretty crucial. But what we're doing is we are learning how to faithfully and flexibly follow Jesus in a world that is changing rapidly around us. And there's a lot of things that are changing in our lives, that have changed in mine, that has changed in yours. And one of the reasons and one of the things we're using to do this is the book by Todd Boltsinger entitled Canoeing the Mountains. And just a quick recap, it is about Lewis and Clark and the great expedition that they they had of the Louisiana Purchase. And it all led up to a significant moment. They had planned, every map said that there was something called a Northwest Passage which basically connected both oceans together. And if they owned that, it would be like owning the internet today. Well, they got to the part that was supposed to be the Northwest Passage. They climbed the mountain, looked over, and there was no Northwest Passage. It was the Rocky Mountains. There was no waterway. They were waterway experts. And so in that moment, they had to drop everything that they knew and everything that they had prepared for And they had to adapt to the new call. And what we learned last week was in a world where everything is changing, the call of Jesus Christ remains the same, which is follow me. Follow me. But there's a tension in that. In order for us to follow Jesus, we have to drop what we know. Because these circumstances and times are changing so rapidly. And today I want to answer sort of a question that should arise in your mind when it comes to dropping everything that we know, just like the disciples did, and following Jesus. And I get it, we're humans. We need motivation to do that. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Jason, I don't need any other motivation than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he is enough for me. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're lying because you need a little motivation, okay? That's the right answer, but deep down inside, we need to know something in order to drop everything that we know. And so the question is this, um, what motivates us to follow Jesus into the unknown? And I think there's three um, common wrong answers that people try to use as motivation in order to get us to follow Jesus, maybe into some relationships or some seasons in our life that that we're fearful of dropping what we know and trusting Jesus. The first common motivation that I think is a wrong one is fear. Fear. Um, I think people use fear as a great motivator. And, you know, we've never seen any of that on the news recently or in the political realm or anything like that. Nobody uses fear to motivate, right? And even when it comes to following Jesus, some of us were sold a bill of goods for motivation to follow him, which was basically, um, God's mad at you, and if you don't turn, then you'll burn. And that was pretty much the gospel that was preached to you. And just a quick survey, um, how's that going for you, Right? You see, fear is actually very powerful for a quick change. I mean, you can, you can do some things with fear. The problem is, is that it's not sustainable. You keep having to create a villain. You keep having to create a hero. And then you have to keep driving that fear in. And people just get exhausted with that. So fear is a motivation that's tried, but it's never sustainable. The second one is this, force, force, right? One of the things that Todd Bolsinger says in the book is when Meriwether Lewis realized that he could not canoe the Rocky Mountains and that he had to drop what he knew, he actually could have just forced it. He could have said, you know what? We've traveled 18 months, we've lost a companion. We're gonna make this thing happen, right? And we're just gonna drive this thing with force, And the reality is, is some of us have tried that in our relationships, right? We say things like, well, this is just who I am. You better get on board, like it or lump it. This is just the way my mama raised me. Okay. Uh, Number one, you're mean. Okay. Right. Secondly, your mama raised you wrong. Love you. All right. Okay. But the force doesn't work. It's not going to last. Jesus actually has a conversation with Pilate. And Pilate says, is your kingdom of this world? He was an emperor. Is your kingdom of this world? And Jesus says, no, it's not. Because if it was, my followers would have taken this by force. You see, you can try to force people to follow Jesus, and it's just not going to be sustainable. Or how about this last one? This one's kind of confusing. Facts. Facts. Some of us are of a personality that right now on Facebook, when we get into arguments and it's data and it's this and that, what you post is, well, all of you are wrong and you just need to read this 95 page PDF. And when you read this, all knowledge will now be instilled in you, right? Some of us are of that personality. And what's kind of a little bit of a tension in that is facts are actually really important. We need facts to follow Jesus We need to follow um, the right Jesus. Facts are important. But you see, facts are actually um, a part of a motivation to follow Jesus. They're not at the heart of it. You see, there is a force that I believe that is so compelling and so strong that it's the only thing that produces lasting change. And we actually have insight into uh, Lewis and Clark. You see, what did it take for these two guys to literally travel into the unknown? I mean, literally nobody had been where they were, traveled these waterways, going into great danger. What was it that held this team so close together that they would go into the unknown? Well, we have insight. On July 24th, 1803, William Clark writes a letter of acceptance to Meriwether Lewis accepting that he will be on the corpse of discovery and follow and go into the Louisiana Purchase. And he says these words. This is an undertaking frightened with difficulties. But my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. My dear friend, I join you with my hand and my heart. You see, listen, we will only go into the unknown with someone that we know. And this is a universal truth. Um, it could be a new job, or, I mean, you can talk to anybody who's traveled the road of addiction and recovery. Nobody's gonna go in down to the road of sobriety unless they have someone with them that they know. And that they trust. And you see, trust is really the key thing. And what we see described here is what I believe is the most compelling force in the world. It's what starts movement. And it's the only thing that can have lasting change. And it's this. A loving relationship. A loving relationship is the only thing that can produce lasting change. That's it. That's it. So, if you treat people like projects... And you just drop in when there's a problem to correct and redirect them, but they don't feel like you love them and that there's actually a relationship they'll feel used and that relationship won't last. When it comes to a marriage, the only thing that will produce lasting change is the love of the relationship. Now, our text, the very famous story of Lazarus. This text actually describes, um, well, I just... I want to show you this. There's three phrases that are used. Look in verse 3. He, Lazarus, whom you love, is ill. Then look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then look at verse 38. See how he loved him. You see, this story in John chapter 11, sure, sure, it shows resurrection power. But what it shows is it shows what the love of Jesus is like. And maybe you've never known that before. I pray that you would know that today. Do you know, I I believe this so much that I believe when somebody encounters the love of God found in Jesus Christ, I believe that their whole life can change. I believe that a marriage that's holding on by a string when it encounters the love of God found in Christ can be resurrected even though that it was once dead. I believe the love of God found in Christ is the most compelling force in the universe. But there's a problem. We have grossly distorted the love of God. I mean, the word love in and of itself, right? We're like, I love my car, I love Taco Bell, I love my wife, Not in that order, okay, right? That would be a lot of problems, okay? Love, 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 love. Love is cheap in our culture. Love means nothing in our culture because it literally means everything in our culture. And love in our culture now is, um, you know, the absence of conflict. You can't correct. You can only endorse. And if you disagree, then you hate my guts. And because you didn't vote it for the same, I mean, it's all distorted. It's a tangled mess. But what we have in these verses is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And I believe it's the only way, listen to me, it's the only way that you're going to follow Jesus through, a, through your entire life, through deaths, through rocky parts of relationships, for some of us through bankruptcy, through cancer, through sickness. It's the only thing that's going to motivate you to follow Jesus. And it's the big idea today. And it's the love of Jesus leads me to follow Jesus. That's it. That's all I got, okay? So if you're like more degrees in Fahrenheit and real smart, this is all I got for you today, okay? It's the love of Jesus leads me and compels me to follow Jesus. But we need to know what that love looks like. And that's what John chapter 11 shows to us. And I believe there's four principles in here. And, and listen, just, just everything up front. There's a lot of talk about equality right now in the world right? Equality. I believe in equality, and I believe that everybody in this room will be equally offended today before you leave, okay? So I'm a strong believer, and everybody gets it today, okay? And it comes right out the gate with the first point, and it's this. Um, Jesus' love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love, Jesus' love is not like your grandmama boo-boo ga where it's like, hey, can I have a cupcake and a star and never just all kind of soft and fluffy type of deal, okay? Jesus' love has a purpose behind it. It's, It's literally doing something. And we see this in verses 1 through 16. Now, here's the scene, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we know that Jesus hung out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus a lot. Jesus loved Lazarus. The crowd even says, Look at how he loved him. We know that Jesus has dinner at their house, they hang out a lot together. So this is Jesus's buddy. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But I want you to look at verse 3. And I've thought about verse 3 all week long. Listen to the words. So the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, listen to these words. Lord, Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 3 is full of theological implications. Why? You see, some of us think that if Jesus loves me, then nothing bad's going to happen to me. It's, I'm reminded of in Chronicles of Nardi when they ask about Aslan. And, and, and Lucy says, is, is Aslan a safe king? And they say, no, no, no. Aslan is not safe, but he is good. You see, Jesus loves Lazarus. It says it. But it also says that Lazarus is sick. Which tells me that, that the love of Jesus does not exempt me from the brokenness of this world. But rather, it, it's actually doing something. And, and this is one of the first principles that I think that we can pull from the text. And it's this. Um, Jesus gives us what we need. Not always what we want, right? Right? And here's what's funny, It's like we understand that as parents, like we get that as parents. But when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, or you know, it's like, hey, wait a second, right? So as as parents, our kids ask us for things, and we, in our hopefully our wisdom, you know, and kids, we're not that much wiser. We're just kind of winging it. Okay, I just kind of want to let that be known. Okay, but we give our kids what what they need. And and look at this, verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And then it goes on to say this, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then look at how verse 5 and verse 6 connect together. I mean, this is incredible with the word so. If you don't have the word so or therefore in your Bible, you need to get a new translation. Look at verse 6. So or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. I'm sorry, come again? Here's what we see. We see Jesus um, giving us what we need and we're confused by it. And then here's the second thing that I see. When it comes to suffering, suffering provides a unique platform for the glory of God to be displayed. That is a very easy sentence to type and is a very easy sentence to say out loud. And that sentence will cost you your life to live by faith. You understand the implications of that? That is saying that when cancer or death or suffering, here's why suffering hurts. Suffering takes something from you. Suffering takes something from you and then gives you something that you did not ask for. And what Christianity says, listen, this is why I believe that Christianity is more compelling than any other religion in the world. By the way, this is a question that you have to answer about suffering and injustice, okay? So you can't just be like, well, I don't believe in the Bible and Christianity because you watched some Facebook video of some guy living in his mom's basement who was like, here's why the Bible's wrong, (laughs) okay? Big questions require big work and you need to be able to grapple with the question about suffering. And what Christianity says is, is that God is so powerful that he actually uses bad things for good, And that's profound. And there's one life and one author that I've followed through an entire journey of their life of suffering who has spoken to this. And and you might know her name. It's Joni Erickson Tata. She was a young girl who jumped into a swimming pool one day, and when she jumped in, she hit her head, heard a crack, and from that moment forward was a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. Battles, pain, and suffering. She's spoken at Billy Graham Crusades, written many, many books. And she has a sentence that I've never forgot, and I remember right where I was when I read it. She says these words. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's what Jesus is saying. They're saying there's death, and Lazarus is sick, and he says this illness is not what you think it is. This illness is a platform. To show the glory of God. And when the world sees someone who is suffering, whether it's, I don't know what the suffering is, but when the world sees someone who's suffering, but at the same time, someone who says, May my life be a display for the goodness and love of God found in Jesus Christ, listen, people will pay attention. People will pay attention. It's not just that Jesus gives us what we need or that suffering provides a unique platform. But there's also something here in the passage that I think is unique, and it's this. God's delay is not his denial. Verses five and six are profound when it says that Jesus loved Lazarus and then verse 6, so when he heard that his boy was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Imagine this, imagine this, okay? Imagine it's 2020. Jesus is a pastor of a church, and somebody sends Jesus a Facebook message. Bing, bloop, pops up. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. Whom you love, come now. And then whether it's a text message or Facebook, nowadays you can't do the like, oh, I didn't see your message, Could you know what it says? It says, seen, check mark, Right? So you can't do the lie thing anymore. Like, oh, I didn't get your message because yeah, you did. I'm going to put you on front street because it says that you saw that with a little check mark, right? So imagine that Jesus gets the text message or the Facebook message and it says, Pastor Jesus, oh, right now, emergency. Lazarus is sick right now. Drop everything and come. You don't hear from Jesus and then his Facebook status is chilling in Bethany for a couple days. Just chilling in Bethany for two days. You didn't, Lazarus is sick. You love him. You're supposed to drop everything for the emergency and come now. And Jesus delays. But did Jesus deny the miracle? No, he didn't. I think the best way, um, I remember when, when our three kids were, were very small and it, you know, dinner time or feeding time, or nursing time. My wife always hated when I said feeding. They were like, she's like, they're not goats or something like that. So the baby's crying, right? And so you, you, you lay the baby down and then you go, you know, make a bottle, it's right there. Um, what happens when you just lay that little human being down in that moment? It's like a demon was created right then. <laughs> it's like this little thing does, it's like I'm gonna shut this whole thing down, okay? Because I need a bottle right now. And I bet if you interviewed the baby in that moment, it would be like, I'm abandoned. I can't, no one loves me. I can't believe that you would do this to me, right? And they think that you've left forever. You're gone forever, right? But as a parent, what are you doing? You're actually preparing and working on the very thing that they need. But it just doesn't seem like it in the moment. And what if, what if the thing that you've been praying for in the season of life that you're in, where you feel like God is quote unquote delaying, He's not denying. What if He's actually working on the very thing that you need? You see, Jesus' love, it's not a pampering love. If that's your motivation to follow Jesus, listen, I've seen it over and over. I've seen people respond to an emotional response, join the church, serve for two weeks, and then when they realize it is not a pampering love, but it's a perfecting love, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this. And what Jesus wants us to know is that his love has a much greater purpose. So it's not a pampering, it's a perfecting, but the second thing is this. Jesus' love is not for some day. Jesus' love is for today. Look at verses 17 through 24. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha... Heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. I can only, like, Mary and Martha, we see their personalities probably more than any other siblings throughout the rest of John's gospel. It's really interesting. But can you imagine Martha um, coming out and her brother died? And remember, she sent a Facebook message and Jesus didn't drop everything and respond to her message because Pastor Jesus is supposed to do that, right? I mean, I think that she probably came out with like a little head nod. She was like, Where have you been? Right? Um, and she says these words. If my brother had been here, or I'm sorry, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, I feel like that's an honest question for Jesus. Do you? That's why I love the Bible. The Bible would love for you to be honest with Jesus. It's okay. Jesus, I'm mad. I'm mad. I don't understand, bro. You were supposed to be here and you weren't here. And I think that if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says this. It's like she realized who she was talking to. And then she said, but, but, even now, you know, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, don't miss this, verse 24. This is so important. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. On what day? Are you looking at your Bible? Do we need to do this over again? Okay, um. The last day. Now listen, here's what's interesting. That's a right answer. Because in her Jewish theology and understanding, the resurrection of the dead was the last thing that would take place for God's kingdom. But here's what she did. She did, oh gosh, don't miss this. She detached her theology from her present need and bypassed her hurt and emotions in that moment and used true theology to bypass her emotions to go to the last day. This is actually a clinical term. And I believe that Christians do this more than anybody realizes. I believe that we do this in our life in such a way that we don't realize it, that it actually hinders our relationship with Jesus. It's a term that Christian counselors use that's called spiritual bypassing. Now here's what spiritual bypassing is. And if you grew up in the South, especially in more of a charismatic background, I'm sorry, this is, I'm just coming at you today, okay? But love you, all right? It's this. Spiritual bypassing is using a spiritual truth that's really true to bypass emotional hurt and emotional health. Example, you're in a season of being lonely and depressed, okay? Like being quarantined for a while. I don't know, okay? That'd be crazy. You're hurt, you're lonely and depressed, but here's what you say. I'm not hurt. I have Jesus. Now, now, question: Do you have Jesus? Yeah, that's true. But question: Are you hurt and are you lonely? Yes. There's an author that I would place before you. Her name is Allison Cook, PhD. And and here are some examples. So, um, emotional health says this: A part of me feels sad today, and I'm curious what that's about. That's emotional health. Did you know the first sign of emotional health is saying, I'm not emotionally healthy? And here's what I'm learning. We think in Christianity we can be spiritually mature and have the great gifts of God and prophecy and do all of these things and be an emotional seven-year-old. Okay? So emotional health says, gosh, I woke up today and I've had some bad thoughts. I am down. I've had some bad thoughts. You know what spiritual bypassing does? It says this. You don't need to be sad. God has given you so much. Question, is that true? Yes, that's true. But guess where Jesus wants to meet you? Well, Jesus responds. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25. And Jesus said to her, I am am the resurrection in the life. And for the two of you who care, in the original language, it's in the present active, which means right now. I am the resurrection in the life. Listen to me. The love of God is not just a phrase. The love of God is not a place. The love of God is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And I am not here to preach to you today so that you can have the love of God for quote-unquote some days. I believe that the love of God can enter your life today right now I believe that some of you came in and if you were honest and didn't uh, spiritually bypass the addiction that's in your life or the hurt that's in your life or the divorce that's in your life but you laid bare before God and said this is what I feel that the love of God could meet you today right now that's how powerful the love of God is That Listen, you can't control Jesus. Martha tries to give the, like, God is good all the time thing, right? And Jesus is like, uh uh-uh, God's right here in your face. So here's what I'm trying to say. If we use the love of God to avoid hard conversations and hard things in our life, we are abusing the love of God. Because what the love of God does is it says that you are fully known And you are fully loved. You see, we don't believe those statements to be true. We believe that if I'm fully known, I will not be fully loved because of the thing with the stuff in my past and no one knows but this person. And every time I see them, I don't look them in the eye. But Jesus looks you in the eye. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. That if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. It's for today, not someday. And then this, Jesus' love hates death. Look at verses 28 through 37. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary. Now Mary was inside, right? Saying in private, the teacher's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus has not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, she saw Mary rise quickly and go out and they followed her. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, same response, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 33. Verse 33, and when Jesus saw her, he said, well, God needed another angel. That's spiritual bypassing. That's, a, that's avoiding hurt and grief. And by the way, I think the, the major emotion that we feel across our nation right now is not just anger and anxiety or fear or those things. There's something underneath all of that, and it is grief because we have lost something. And the expression of grief is anger, anxiety, fear, all of those types of things. So, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 33. This is so profound when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, it's one of the very first Bible verses we all memorized, right? Two words, Jesus wept. What does he do? Jesus enters into the pain and suffering. Do you understand the profound implications of that? That you do not have a distant God. You do not have a distant God, but Jesus weeps with those who weep. And as the prophecy in Isaiah says, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And that actually the phrase that he was greatly troubled actually is one huge word in the original language and it means that he was angry in his gut, right? Almost like Taco Bell or something like that, right? That he was angry, it's where we get the phrase gut feeling. I have a gut feeling. Why was Jesus angry? Because he stood at the tomb of a friend that he loved and he hated death and the consequences of it he realized and said with his body, it is not supposed to be this way. That's why when you stand at a graveside or when you watch on the news, there is something in you that goes, why? Why? It's not supposed to be this way. But it's not that Jesus was just angry like that. It's Jesus knew what he was going to have to do to correct it. And do you know what Jesus was going to have to do to correct? Sure, he was going to raise Lazarus. But guess what? After this miracle, Lazarus still died. I mean, Lazarus got raised from the dead. And then Lazarus still has a tombstone with a death date on it. But there's a greater death. And Jesus knew in order to correct that, that he was going to have to die himself. That's the love of God found in Jesus Christ. And here's what I'm trying to say. Listen to me. Jesus is more passionate about your life than you are. Do you understand that? That Jesus is so passionate about us being reconciled to God that he carries a cross and faces death on our behalf. This is good news for us. Because some of us were sold a bill of goods. And the bill of goods was that Jesus kind of died on the cross and rose from the grave, but everything else is left up to me. Like grace is what gets you in the door, but effort is what gets you into heaven later on. And listen, grace is not opposed to effort, as Dallas Willard says, but it's opposed to earning, earning God's favor. That's found in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is so passionate about that, that if we understood the glimpse and the depths of despair that he went through to get it, it would be the greatest motivation to follow him. But the last and fourth thing that I see in verses 38 through 44 is this, is that Jesus' love resurrects dead things. This is the scene, right? Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, by the way, the same phrase, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. I almost picture the scene in the good, bad, and the ugly, right? Remember, we're blondie. He sees blondie, and then the tumbleweed, and then wah, 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 and we see it take place, and Jesus is there at the tomb. Everybody's watching, and he probably said in Hebrew, I'm your huckleberry, underneath his breath, okay? And he's there at the tomb, and he says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. He stinketh. By the way, if this was a fairy tale and if I was writing a mythical story in order to show that Jesus raised someone from the dead, I would not put these amount of details in there. I just, why would you put that amount of details in there if it's myth? I mean, these things are like an eyewitness account. And they rolled the stone, right? He's been dead four ways. Verse 40, and Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. And by the way, Jesus never moves on his own. It is the relationship of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together. And Jesus lifts his voice and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around, that they would believe that you've sent me. That's the whole thing. The whole purpose that that this is recorded is that you would see the love of God found in Jesus Christ and that you would believe and that you would build your life on it. So, Father, that they would believe, in verse 43, when he said these things, here it is, man. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You know what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says? Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that he used Lazarus' name. Because if he hadn't have said Lazarus' name, then every dead person in the graveyard would have resurrected and come out Because that's how powerful Jesus is. That is some gangster type stuff right there. Lazarus, come forth. Do you understand that this is the same word and the same voice that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and voidless and darkness covered the face of the deep and God said, let there be light And there was light. It's the same voice that spoke creation. It's the same voice that speaks to Lazarus. And it's the same voice that speaks to you and I today. Listen, this whole story of Lazarus is the way that God calls us forth from death as well. For Ephesians chapter two, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. And it says, Lazarus, come out, verse 44. The man who had died came out, but his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Spurgeon would go on to say that most Christians live in the in-between. They've been called forth from the grave, but they still wear grave clothes. Because we are entangled to our past and our former identity. So how do we get untangled from that? Jesus said to them, people around, this is where the church comes in. You see, the miracle of salvation only happens by the grace of God. I mean, it's what we say, what Jonah says, that salvation is of the Lord. That the Lord speaks that, but in order for us to be formed into our identity, God brings people into our life that shows the love of God. Listen, I'm so weary of people who are like, well, I'm just at home with my Bible and I'm just experiencing the love of God, watching Charles Stanley in the morning. Mm -mm -mm. Love him, Pastor. That's great. I love Charles Stanley. He's as old as Methuselah and I can't believe he's still preaching. That's unbelievable life. That's incredible. But listen to me. The love of God is experienced, empowered by the Spirit of God, through the people of God. Through the people of God. So some of us feel like our name has been called forth, but we're still bound up in clothes. And my question to you is, show me the quality of the relationships in your life, and I'll show you the quality of the grave clothes that you wear. Because Jesus resurrects dead things. And maybe you came in here today and you felt like my marriage is done. That relationship is done. This job is done. This season in my life is done. And listen, I have good news to tell you. I'm so glad that you feel like you're dead. Because God only resurrects dead things. And some of us haven't experienced the resurrected power of God. You know why? Because we're still holding on to our ego. And we're still holding on to our pride. And we're still holding on to the will that we can try to force to do this. But any man who should come after me should take up his cross daily, deny himself, and then he can follow me. You see, in order to experience Resurrection Sunday, you have to have Crucifixion Friday. And we have to lay bare and surrendered at the feet of Jesus Christ. It is the love of Jesus that compels us to follow Jesus. I want to close with this. One of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of Karl Barth. And he looks like this, which is really cool, okay? Karl Barth's a Swiss theologian profound. He wrote one of the greatest gifts ever to the church called Church Dogmatics. It's 14 volumes. I own it, by the way, for the one of you that care, okay? And so it's just thousands of pages of theology. The guy has more degrees than Fahrenheit. I mean, it's just unbelievable the knowledge that this guy has. He was interviewed by Christianity Today. I mean, this is a pillar of the faith. This guy is writing things that have just are a gift to the church. He's interviewed by Christianity Today, and the set of books is sitting there. And the interviewer points to that and says, what's that all about? That's a lot. What of that's all about? And what is your life's work really all about? What does all of this mean? And Karl Barth took off his round glasses, put his pipe up to his mouth and thought for a moment. And then said this Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. (laughs) Oh, you wanted a profound answer. You wanted the little fairy dust that would fix your life. We never move beyond it. We never move beyond the most compelling force in the world, which is a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. So, listen, I just have some questions. Did you think that God's love was a pampering love? Is that why you feel the rub? Our expectations determine our experience. We have to view God rightly in that sense. The second thing is this. Are you bypassing some hard work that Jesus wants to do with you? And are you you using spiritual truths to do that? Like, you know, maybe you need marriage counseling, but you keep saying, oh, we, we have God. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't need counseling. You do have the Holy Spirit. Here's what we like to say at Westside. We believe in Jesus and math all at the same time. It's fascinating, right? What what are you bypassing in your life that Jesus wants to go with you in? Because it's there where you experience the love of God. And then this, what do you think, honestly, what do you think is so dead in your life that can't be resurrected? Because let me tell you about my Jesus. My Jesus doesn't just speak, Lazarus, come forth, but Jesus himself burst forth from the grave. And today we sing, we pray, and we preach about a God who is alive because the grave is empty and the throne is occupied. And the love of Jesus is not for just some day, it's for today, it's for right now. So Westside, let us stand to our feet and let us pray out loud how Jesus taught us to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, God, grateful for your love found in Christ. But God, I pray for all of us in here today, if we're honest, all of us in this room have a relationship or have a, an act of obedience that we are delaying on because we're afraid, Jesus. We're afraid to have that conversation, to step out in faith because it's the unknown. But today I pray that we see the God that is known in you, Jesus. I pray that your love would compel us and produce that lasting change that we all desire. Holy Spirit, may something that is dead in this place be resurrected today. And may we have the faith to believe it, that it's not just for someday, but it's for today. It's for right now. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ.